Well, back in my bachelor days, before I met Laura, I had uh, returned home from Iraq. I was a corporal in the Marine Corps, and uh, I hadn't been spending money for a while, even at $5 an hour. And so I had some cash in my pocket. It was the first time I ever did, so I did what any good corporal in the Marines would do. I spent it. And I bought myself a car, a Jeep Grand Cherokee Laredo. I loved that thing. It was used. It was a little beat up, but it was everything that I ever wanted in a vehicle. I loved the four-wheel drive on that thing. I, it, was, it was just fun to be able to take it on the road, get decent gas mileage, and on the occasion that I found it necessary to go off-road in the western suburbs of Chicago, um, I would do so. And uh, on the occasion that those, those, uh, those wide-open, giant mall parking lots were covered in snow and no one had yet done donuts, I was happy to help deal with that error. I could even fit in the back of this thing four by eight sheet goods, drywall and, and plywood. If you put it on the side like this angle, you could, you could cram it in with the back gate open. I loved my Jeep Grand Cherokee Laredo. And that was the vehicle that I was driving when I met my wife. That's probably part of why she found me attractive because it was such a cool vehicle. Well, after we started having kids, uh, I think we had Bethany at the time. Uh, Laura was pregnant with Gabe. And we had been praying that God would multiply our family and we wanted to have a vehicle that'd be able to be more helpful. And so I had to upgrade to a Honda Odyssey. And that's a way manlier vehicle, if you know. And so uh, we traded in the Jeep, had a few tears shed, but the Honda Odyssey was a total upgrade. That thing's like a spaceship. It's amazing. I could push a button and it opens the side doors like a helicopter flying into Vietnam and the kids jump in. It is awesome. And uh, we've loved it ever since. Seriously, we've had it for about 10 years and it has been awesome. It has been a total upgrade. But every once in a while... I do think about the merits of that four-wheel drive and that manly kind of mid-size SUV. <laughs> Every once in a while, I realize that there were a few things about the old that were a little bit better than the new, and I get nostalgic for that. I, I oftentimes remind my wife when we're driving somewhere in the, in the van, you know, if we had four-wheel drive, we could, and I'd fill in the blank, all kinds of things. And of course, I don't have some of those features. We all have those kind of things in life where we can think about an upgrade. Maybe we, maybe we have moved into a new home from a previous home and there's so much more space and there's a garage that's attached, but that last house did have better whatever. That last car. We do that about lots of things in our life. We make an upgrade, but the upgrade is not always perfect in all the categories. But when it comes to the old covenant that's the way that God related to his people in the Old Testament days. And we compare that to today in Jesus, the way that God relates to people in the New Testament day, there is no comparison. There is no category of things in the New Covenant that is lacking what was once there in the Old it is an upgrade in every possible way. There is no looking back to some of those features that we longingly sigh and miss. Everything about the new covenant is better than the old. Last week, I was explaining to you that if you were to grab the Bible and, and kind of open it up into two parts, it's broken into the New Testament and the Old Testament. 
And of course, that is the vision between the time before Jesus and the time after Jesus' birth, yes. But it is also detailing a period of history that took place during a promised covenant with people in the old and a new promised covenant with people today because of Jesus. And that, I think, was the point the author was making in the passage we covered last week in Hebrews chapter 8. In fact, the author went back into the Old Testament. He went back into Jeremiah 31. That was a, a prophet in the Old Testament days who lived under the Old Covenant, lived hundreds of years before Jesus was born, and he spoke on behalf of God, writing about a future time where this new covenant will come, and it will be way, way, way better than the one they were currently living in. And that was inaugurated in Jesus coming into this world and living the perfect life dying for our sins and being raised again. Now, why does this matter for Christians today? Why is a passage like this we're about to cover, which is going to continue down that same path about things that are better about the new covenant than the old, why is this helpful for us? I think at least in part, because it's helpful for us to remember what it used to be like so that we can appreciate just how good we have it. That's just one simple thing. Tomorrow is Columbus Day, and it works out that uh, in this season of our homeschool curriculum with the kids at home, they're going through the age of exploration, Columbus, Vespucci, Magellan, Cortez, up until, in this year of the school, they'll kind of be going up until uh, the days of the establishment of the Constitution, the United States becoming a country, uh, Declaration of Independence, some of the early documents. So it's that period of history that we're looking at, the end of the 14th 1400s up until the end of the 1700s. And so I've been reading through multiple books with my kids. After our family worship time, at the end of night, uh, we do some songs together, Bible time, catechism, send the littlest ones up to sleep, and the oldest stay down there. And I've probably gotten maybe six books in now to just reading, maybe four chapters or something at a night, about that time period. I'm a total history nerd, for the record. I love history, and I love teaching my kids history. And one of the things I love about teaching them those things is I want them to get a perspective of what life was really like all through the ages, not just what they perceive now. Parents, how many of you like, wish that your kids could understand time periods in the past uh, earlier than you, you did eventually? Or maybe even wish that they could see what the world is like outside of the safety of your home and country and all that, right? So that they would not take for granted all the wonderful things that we have today. I desperately want for my kids to know what it is that freedom means. I would hope that they would understand what it was like to live in a day before electricity. Even the, even the bad things about our earliest history, I want them to see. I want them to know those things so they can appreciate what we have today. We've become so distant in the New Testament day right now from that period of history, not only in America's founding and, and that day, but way back to the Old Testament day, the, the first half of our Bible. We are so far away from that in a timeline. I think that many churches today don't acknowledge as they ought the Old Testament, don't find in it the relevance that we should. In fact, many people who call themselves Christian consider the Old Testament entirely irrelevant. And the farther... They distance themselves from God's law, the more like the rest of the world will become. I was looking at some statistics 
about the Christian religion over the last 10 years. There's a new bout of these that have been coming out recently. I'm not sure if you've been looking at them online. I was just reviewing some of them. Here were some that jumped out to me this last week. Just regarding social issues today and the way that Christians look at things today compared to how they used to look at them even 100 years ago. 54% of American Christians think homosexuality is acceptable to God. 44% favor or strongly favor same-sex marriage. 45% of people who would check Christian on a survey believe that abortion should be legal in all or most cases. 32% of professed Christians would not even say their religion is very important. Less than half go to church or any church type of gathering weekly. That was prior to COVID. 24% of people surveyed that check Christian are not certain that God exists. But 65% believe they have spiritual peace or well-being as Christians. How is that possible? How is it possible for 24% of people to say God doesn't exist and 65% to say that they have peace with him? Since the earliest days of mankind, man has fallen out of right relationship with God. This is all of us. We've fallen out of right relationship with God. But in his gracious goodness, he has provided a way for us to have peace with him. The more people distance themselves from and turn their back on God's word, the less we understand and can relate to what the Bible says about reality, history, life even today, the more unfamiliar we become with this God who gave us this word. The more everything ends up on the chopping block. In today's passage, we're going to get a brief review of the Old Testament system of worship that God gave to his people. Namely, the temple and the priesthood and how they functioned under the old covenant. And the author of Hebrews is going to emphasize how that system was unable to accomplish what we needed. Thus pointing to a need for something more permanent and effective. So, in part, this is what I hope to accomplish today. In part, I hope for you to see that everything that was ever written in the Old Testament is not arbitrary for us. But it was written for a purpose, with an intention, and with a firm foundation on that Old Testament, on that Old Covenant, can we have a genuine understanding of how good we have it in the new. And we can remain firm so that those kinds of stats might not be said to be true of us. What I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to read through this whole passage, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. And I'm going I'm to go back through after reading it, read through, pray, go back through about verses 1 through 10 at a, at a, a little slower pace. And the last four verses, I, I'm just going to cover kind of quickly. Uh, we'll revisit them next week, but I want you to see a few things there in our conclusion today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. And I'm going to go ahead and read through verses 1 through 14. Let's do that. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. 
Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with the food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let's pray. Father, there is much going on in these verses. There are things that if we don't have familiarity with the Old Testament are almost nonsensical to us. Those words are almost meaningless to us. So Lord, we're, need, we're gonna need your help collectively for you to help us just to focus in and try to see what's being stated here so that we can gain the benefit from this passage exactly as it's intended, which is to glorify Jesus. Show us how much we need him and how much only a system of grace through faith can be sufficient for our salvation. Father, help us to see that. And Lord, for myself, for me as a preacher, Lord, I pray that you'd help me to be true, clear, and helpful. Help me to explain as helpfully as I can to the people here whom I love and want to help what's happening so that they get a clearer view of you and that they can love and worship you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's going to be the sermon today. I'm going to try my best to explain what's happened all here. And, and it's likely that the more familiar you are with the Old Testament, the quicker you're going to get there, okay, okay, with me. But I'm going to try hard just to go slow enough, not laboring all the points, but just slow enough so that everyone goes, I think I'm following you. I think I see what the point is here. So let's go back. I'm going to put the verses we're covering today up on the screen. We can look at them together. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared... The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Quick pause. What we're going to notice over the course of the next 10 verses, really five, the first five is when he talks about the location, is that the author here is going to conflate together what we call the tabernacle, Solomon's temple, the temple that would follow in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and even Herod's temple. All that means is that God established in the Old Testament that there would be a place where people would worship him. And that place began as a tabernacle. It was literally a tent. It was a portable temple. 
And it was because the people didn't live in one place. They were literally moving very regularly. So God said, make a tent that will be a portable temple. You'll move that as you move. And wherever you set up, the temple gets set up first and you, you, you surround it. And once the tabernacle finds its place into a permanent resting place, then we'll build it into stone and make a permanent location there. And God would choose that location to be on the mount in Jerusalem. So he's going to conflate tabernacle and temple here and all of this stuff. And I'm going to do the same because that's how he speaks here. Right out of the gate, I want you to see that the author uses a past tense. Now, even the first covenant had, had regulations for worship. In other words, he's saying there was a time before his day that the first covenant was established. And in that covenant, that period of time, they had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. A major summary point from last week was that the old covenant is obsolete. It is gone. It has been superseded by the new covenant. I'm going to read the last verse of the last chapter. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The author has made it clear that the old covenant has been completed, fulfilled in Jesus, and now we're not living in an old covenant anymore, in a new one. So the old covenant had regulations and a place for worship, but that old covenant has been fulfilled, closed, done, gone. The author goes on to explain the regulations for worship. And if you were to compare this verse with verse 10, if in your Bible's there, you'll notice the word regulations shows up in both, because that's kind of a summary. It's saying that that section is going to talk about what it was like in that old covenant day, a day of those types of regulations. This portable temple that was commanded to be built by Moses is referred earlier in Hebrews chapter 8. He's already covered this. So if you're reading quickly through the book of Hebrews, you'd have already seen him say this in verse 5 of chapter 8. When Moses was about to erect the tent, that's the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So Moses didn't arbitrarily pick the colors of the tabernacle or the size and shape of it and all the parts and pieces. God said, I want you to make it exactly like this. And he had a particular idea in mind. And Moses did. And those who followed him and would build a physical temple did. They followed that same pattern and it was all there for a reason. The author is about to very quickly here detail the two sections of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a rectangular shape tent. And it had two square shape, if you kind of look at it on a floor plan, sections. The first section was called the holy place. It's the last sentence here. It's called the holy place. And the author identifies two pieces of furniture in that holy place. He identifies the lampstand, which as you were walking in would have been on your left side, so over here for you. And the bread of the presence, where they actually put bread daily there before the Lord. And that was on the right hand side as they walked on in. He continues to tell us more about the next space. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Pause real quick. There was one curtain or, or a screen to get into the tent itself. Now you're in the holy place. And there was dividing that giant tent into two sections was another curtain and that kept people out of the most holy place. So continuing on, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna 
and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim, or angels, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Real quick, the author is kind of given us his Hebrew cred because he knows the details about what, is, what it looked like inside the tabernacle, inside of their temple, because he knew what the scriptures had said. He'd never been inside there. This guy has never been inside the temple. Only the Aaronic priest could go inside the first, and the singular great high priest would go into the second section once a year, but he knew what it looked like inside. Quick point here. We live in an area surrounded by Mormon temples. In fact, just a uh, a couple weeks ago, this last weekend, general conference was held and the LDS president shared that they were pre preparing to build their 25th temple in Utah. 25 temples. I drive by two temples on the way to work every morning. Some of you might drive by more. And one of the things that my, my beloved LDS friends and neighbors will, will share with me is it's, just, it's a sacred place. And it's the kind of place that we just don't talk about what goes on inside. It's kind of secret. It's sacred. You don't really detail that. Guys, that is not the way the Bible talks about what happened in the tabernacle of the temple. You knew exactly, exactly what was supposed to happen in that place. To the letter of the law, every word of what took place inside there was written for every single person in the community to know. If you ever have somebody tell you that in my religion, there's this one secret, sacred place you're not allowed to know what goes on, run. We want things exposed to the light and truth and not hidden in dark places be something to think about as we, li we live in this kind of area around us. The second curtain was the curtain that divided the most holy place from the holy place. Now, real quick, because if, you, if you're uh, referencing this floor plan and you're wondering where the altar of incense was, you guys see that, the altar, having the golden altar of incense? Was it in front of the curtain or behind it? According to the whole rest of the Bible, we know that it's in front of the curtain. It's not in the second section. The word here that says having the golden altar can actually also be uh, uh, translated as associated with. So it's almost certainly meaning that the curtain, that altar, and then the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant behind it, that that was all part of that one, one portion of that tabernacle. I think that's what he has in mind. Perhaps it might be like referring to the doormat of your home as part of the house. Because it's, it's, it's almost like it's connected to where it is. But this guy tells us where the pieces are. He tells us what was inside of the Ark of the Covenant. Ever seen Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark? That's a pretty good image of what that Ark probably looked like. The guys who made that movie actually checked the, the text of the Old Testament. Probably looked quite a bit like what it looked like in that movie. And in that Ark were placed, they called it here a golden urn, holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. These were just things that were significant in Israelite history during the days of desert wandering. They were supposed to have as a kind of memory forever before God that they went through that season before they ended up into the promised land. He did this list quick. And he finishes by saying, these, these things we cannot now speak of in detail. So we're going to move on past this because his point is just to say, I want you to know that's what that temple was like in that day. And he again shows his familiarity with that system of worship and his appeal to that system once again implies that he expects his audience to also have a familiarity with it. That's why we call this the letter to the Hebrews. It sounds like he's talking to people who should understand what he's saying. Now he switches gears to talk about what the priests did in that physical temple, in that tabernacle. 
These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. So, as we've covered in past weeks, I've said it quickly already, only those in the line of Levi and in the sub-line of Aaron, and even then, only then, just the men were of, of a certain age, <laughs> were allowed to be in that section at all in order to perform ritual duties. And we'll find out later, they didn't just kind of wander in like, ah, it's kind of a nice place to hang out. They actually, uh, uh, 12 different months in a year, uh, they were split into 12s, and then they would have uh, uh, times once a year that that would be their dedicated month that they'd have the duty to go in. So it was incredibly limited who could go into that holy place. They had very specific functions, what they could do in there, what they couldn't, and they'd leave when they were done. That's the way it worked out. Continues on. But into the second, second section behind the curtain, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. That's exactly correct. This guy knows precisely what it says in places like Leviticus 16 in the Old Testament, which tells us what the Day of Atonement was supposed to look like. It was the one day in a year where the high priest was permitted to go behind that veil, behind that curtain, into the most holy place to bring a blood offering. He'd sprinkle it on the mercy seat. It was supposed to be like the, 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 the picture of the throne of God. And it was to offer sacrifice, blood sacrifice, for the sins of the people. Something deserves to die for the sins. And so they kill this animal. They have a goat and a bull, and they have one priest bring that in, one high priest Incredibly limited entrance. So what is his purpose in saying all this? He's about to get to it. A Jew could say, you've given us no new information. All of this is already in our Old Testament. Why do we care about you bringing this up now? Where are you going, author? Well, all of what he's been saying so far in this very quick summary is a setup to the following point. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Let's just pause. There's going to be a lot to unpack in these few verses. We're going to spend the majority of the rest of our time here. The Holy Spirit indicates. Wait, the Holy Spirit indicates. He's reciting and, and, and referring back to passages of the Bible written by some guy named Moses. He's just some guy. He's a dude. He lived and he died. And he sinned. He murdered. He actively murdered. Do you remember how Moses actually looked left and right, saw no one around, and, and killed an Egyptian who he saw beating a Hebrew? That's Moses. This was just a guy. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. But here, the author says, by this law given, the Holy Spirit indicates something. So I, I, I can't not rush over this because of how much we love the Bible here. The author attributes Moses' writings to the Holy Spirit. There are literally 50 chapters of the Old Testament that are devoted to this system of worship. 50 chapters to talk about exactly what yarn they should use and what kind of uh, vases they should use and what the, uh, the materials they should use to make these variety of tools and instruments needed for their, their spaces of worship. All of them penned here by Moses. 
But the author shamelessly credits God for what men have written down, written down in the Old Testament. Our claim is not that men haven't written the Bible. Our claim is that the Holy Spirit inspired the men to write the Bible. So when we obey the word of God, we're obeying what he has stated, not just the arbitrary thoughts of random people. And this author does that here. The Holy Spirit indicates. What does he indicate? That the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. The first section here again refers to the holy place. That first room, the lobby area of the tabernacle, as somebody, as they're walking on in, might see, a, a, high, a priest might see as they walk on in. As long as that's standing, then the way to God is not yet opened. There is still a limit. There's a limitation. There is a, you may not pass here. No trespassing between us and the most holy place. So in other words, why can't any random worshiper in the Old Testament enter into the most holy place? Because the holy place is in the way. You can't get in there. The only way in is through that curtain, through the variety of systems that have been set up by God, rituals in order to get on in, and you can't do those. You may not get in. I want you to imagine for a second what it must be like to have grown up as a Hebrew kid in this day. Maybe during the days of the desert wanderings where the temple was portable still. It was the tabernacle. And you'd look, Mommy, Daddy, what's that big tent in the middle of all the other tents? Well, that's, that's the house of God. That, that's where God meets his people. That's where, that's where he sits on the throne in the midst of the people. Oh, can I go in there? No! You may never enter into the presence of God. But when I get older, no! You may never, ever go in there. I can't, I can't be close to God, never. Neither you, nor your children, nor your children's children's children will ever be able to enter into there. What was that tabernacle for the people? It was a symbol of separation between God and us. That's what a temple symbolizes. It was expected for the Israelite people to teach their children as we are to teach our children why it is that we are separate from God. Isaiah 59, 1 through 2 says this, and this is written during a period of time where Israel was under some particular kind of judgments for their rejection of God. It says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Why can't that Hebrew boy or girl enter into the temple and go into the most holy place to be in the presence of God? Because their sin had made a division between God and man. The fault is in us, not in God. That's what the verse is saying. It's not that God can't save. It's not that God can't hear. Our sins have pressed him away. There is a segregation between what is holy and what is unholy. I want you to remember for a moment the story of Adam and Eve, just real quick with me. If you have any memory of this at all, this is the time period way back before sin entered the world where God walked 
in the garden in the cool of the day to be in the presence of Adam and Eve, this man and woman who need a sign to work his garden. He made a garden. It's his garden. It all belongs to him. And he says, you're going to work my garden. And you're going to toil here. And he made the man to work it and the woman to help. And they were to do that. They were to subdue the garden and to, to make it flourish. And it didn't war back against them. And God was there with them. And it was perfect in peace. But then sin, sin broke that peace. God said, all of these trees you can have, but just one for me. Adam and Eve effectively said, we want that one. We don't care about all the rest. We want that one. And they took of the fruit that he had commanded them not to eat of. The man and the woman had sinned against God. Question for you, if you remember that story, they were deceived by the serpent. They took the fruit. The woman took it. The man took it. They both take a bite. God shows up, calls out to Adam, where are you? What happened to the garden when sin came into the world? Short answer, nothing. The garden didn't change. The people were kicked out of the garden. That's what happened. In fact, after God takes the man and the woman and he chastises the serpent and he chastises the woman and he chastises the man and he takes them and he kills an animal and covers them with the skins of that animal. Because now they know that they're naked and they're ashamed. And he kicked them out of the garden. You may not be in my holy place anymore because you have become unholy. And what does he put at the entrance to the garden? An angel and a flashing sword called no one can enter in why because the unholy must stay out where the holy remains this is an image of the tabernacle and the temple throughout all the days of the old testament people that temple was to symbolize a separation between god and mankind it's what it's there for and that's why it says the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. He says that the, all of that has been a symbol for the present age. So what's the question? what does he mean by present age? I want you to remember real quick when this author is writing. This author is writing in an extremely unique period of history. It's a period of history after Jesus has already come in and become the great high priest when he's already come in and become our final and ultimate sacrifice when he says that he himself is our temple. He's already done that. And the temple itself is destroyed. He lives in this very odd transition period when the age of the Israelites and their temple worship and that system of the old covenant was still existing. There was still a high priest on earth. There was still a temple on earth. There were still blood sacrifices happening every day and a day of atonement happening once a year. All that was still happening in the days that the author of Hebrews was writing until 70 AD. 70 AD, a generation. I want you to think about that. Maybe 40 years Around 40 years after the death of Jesus, we have this period of time where Hebrews is written, where the old covenant has already been made ineffective. It is ready to vanish away. And when the temple is destroyed, boom, gone. That system of worship is done. No one could even appeal to that as a hope any longer. It is finished. It is completed. The temple was an image 
It was a symbol of our separation from God. A real problem is what was pictured when we saw that thing. I said before that we look around, we see Mormon temples everywhere. It's not just Mormons who build temples to get close to God. The apostle Paul preached amongst the men of Athens who had the same wrong thinking. He says this in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul is trying to appeal to these people who are thinking that they can get close to their gods, their divines, through altars and temples. But temples cannot get you closer to God. In fact, the only temple in the history of the world that was authorized to be built by God was not a symbol of our closeness to him, but our estrangement from him. The way to God was extremely limited. When I have LDS friends say like, oh, just the temple makes me feel close to God. Well, then it's not working. The purpose of a temple was to show you that you are unholy and he is holy. That he is separate because of your wickedness. That because of what you have done, you have pressed him away and there is a divide. And as long as that temple is there, it shows you, you are not close to him. You're not That temple in Jerusalem was standing in the days of the writing of Hebrews. That symbol was present, ever present. It is symbolic for the present age, the age then present, the one that was present when the author was writing this. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. A couple quick things. First, right out of the bat, what does he acknowledge about that old covenant system? It was never designed to solve the heart problem. It couldn't do it. It only dealt with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed. These are external things. This is just like we covered last week. All these external things about the old covenant. The new covenant will deal with the internal. That's all they deal with. Food, drink, various washings, regulations for the body imposed until another time. The old covenant was imposed until what? Until the time of reformation. Well, when's the time of reformation? The time of reformation is the time following the days and ministry of the life of Jesus. You and I are living in the time of reformation. The author of Hebrews is living in the time of the Reformation. I was taught all my life that someday the Jews would build a temple in Jerusalem. As a Christian, as, as grown up in Christian household and in the Christian churches, I was taught this all my life. That this is what we're, we're looking forward to a day where the Jews will rebuild a temple to God and it'll be evidence that they're coming back to him. Guys, that is flat out wrong. Any building of a temple will be a further pushing away of the glory of God. It would be yet again further blasphemous rejection of a people's rejection of the Messiah. That's what it would be. It would be a rejection of the Messiah. We don't want that Messiah. We're going to reinstate temple worship. Separation between us and God is what we want. That's what a future temple would be. And that's why the Bible uses language like this. There was one age where there was a temple. The one that was then present. And that age is done. Why? Because we have it fulfilled in Jesus in every possible way. 
For the Jews to build a temple in Jerusalem would be a slap in the face of our almighty God. That would not be good, Christians. It would be wicked and dishonoring. And if you're, if you're wondering, is he right on that? Is, that what the time, is he saying that now is the time of reformation? Look at what he says in the next verse. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So pause, look what he's saying. Christ already appeared, and he has already been made a high priest of the good things that have come. They've come by his day. Jesus already brought in those good things. He's already brought in and established the new covenant. Not the old covenant, not a review of it, not a renewal of the old covenant, something totally new. He's appeared in that way, and he is our great high priest. Past tense on these things. This author is living in the time of Reformation as you and I still are today, and we will be living until Jesus returns in the end to finish all things. All the work is already complete in Jesus. Jesus does not hang on the cross and say, it is almost finished. Just a few more things I gotta work out. It is finished. It is done. He says, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. That's the temple. Jesus came to be our great high priest. Chapters five through seven repeated this over and over. If you want to go back and check that again, he offered a blood sacrifice on our behalf. And did he enter into the physical temple in Jerusalem? No. And that's an awesome thing. He entered into the greater and more perfect tent. What does that mean? It's referring to heaven. The greater and more perfect tent is referring to here. Here it's referring to, to heaven. And I'll show you why. In, uh, Hebrews 9.24, we'll get there in upcoming weeks. It says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Okay, so that's what's being talked about here. He entered not into the heaven here, on, not, not into the earthly temple, but there. Brothers and sisters, it, it's, it's significant that Jesus did not enter into the earthly temple. That's awesome. Because he wasn't appealing to the old covenant, but to a new, which had been established in his death. It is significant that he didn't enter into the earthly temple because the earthly temple was made of temporal things by sinful hands, tainted by the faithlessness of the people. It was unable to permanently affect our relationship with God. But Jesus entered into the real temple, the eternal heavenly temple, not made with sinful human hands, one that can never and will never be destroyed. And our salvation is secured for as long as that temple still stands. The new covenant will last as long as the existence of the heavenly temple as the old covenant lasted for the period of time of that temple. I've said this many times before, that when Jesus brought this blood into the temple, it was so powerful. Why don't you look at this real quick again? He did not enter into that perfect temple with just blood of goats and calves in the Old Testament. But he entered in by the means of his own blood. And this is the thing that bears repeating, because we've hammered this before. You need to understand this. The life of a million goats and calves cannot amount to the value of a single human. Not one. We've been made image bearers of God. And back to the earliest chapters of Genesis. The days come, Noah coming off of the flood, God said that if an animal kills a man, kill that animal. But a man may kill an animal. Maybe thousands in his lifetime to eat, for sacrifice. 
Jesus even says, you are worth more than many sparrows. So it's not just that pragmatically we're at the top of the food chain because we have weapons and we're usually bigger and stronger and faster than a lot of animals and we can collectively gather together and fight them off. That's, that's not the point, a materialistic, pragmatic hierarchy. But that God made mankind uniquely image bearers of God, distinctly. And as humankind, we are higher in value than all the animals. It's the way that God designed it. How then can the death of a goat or a bull pay for the sins of all the people? And that was the point. Those sacrifices could never perfect the conscience of a worshiper. That value wasn't enough. But when Jesus entered into the ultimate heavenly temple, he went in by means of his own blood, which is infinite in value. The life of one Jesus, one Son of God is greater than the value of the lives of a trillion people. That's how that works. This is why Christians really care about the details on this one. Because if you say Jesus was just a man, well then how can one man dying affect millions, billions, trillions of other people over the course of human history by the end of this? How can that possibly be a value trait? The answer is it can't. Only a perfectly, infinitely valued div- divine being can be even close to that. Jesus and his life is worth more than all of ours combined. And that's why his death is able to be sufficient for all mankind. Enough for all of us. And thus, he offers eternal redemption. Once and for all, perfect, complete, done. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, infinite value, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We'll spend way more time on that next week. But just in summary, if the limited value of the blood of goats and calves and bulls could provide a temporal peace between man and God. That's the purification of the flesh so that even a sinful man could worship God. Then how much more can the infinitely valuable blood of Jesus in the new covenant buy us eternal peace with God? The New Testament tells us that everything about this covenant is better than the old The new covenant is better than the old in every way. And I started earlier on in this sermon asking, how is is it that a person can undermine all the claims of the Bible, all the things that the word of God says so clearly, say that they're a Christian, and think that they're approved in doing so? Because when you turn your back on the word of God, nothing is sacred anymore. The Old Testament points us to the new. Here's three points of application for you as we close. Real quick. Read the Old Testament and love it. Read this to your kids. Look at the Old Testament. Spend time in this in Bible study. Look at what it used to be like. Look at the systems and how they were designed and how even with all of that there, that could never perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It couldn't solve the real heart problem. Number two, remember that you deserve to be separated from God. You deserve that. You and I deserve that. Just like that Hebrew boy or girl looking at the tabernacle and asking mommy and daddy, can I go in there and say no? You and I are every bit as unworthy of entering into that holy place. We don't deserve that. 
There's nothing so holy and good in us that we're better than the people of the old covenant days. Not remotely. We have a perfect Jesus who has once and for all knocked open the way to God that we can have access. You know what happened when Jesus was on the cross? Do you remember what the, Matthew chapter 27 tells us happened in the, in the temple at the moment of Jesus' death when the new covenant was officially ratified in the blood of Jesus because it demanded the death of a blemish-free sacrifice. Jesus died. It is finished. Breathed his last. What happened in the temple? The curtain was torn in two. That separation between God and man, gone. And for how long? Forever. Never again must a person have to be separated from God because of our unholiness, because Jesus has paid the price. And by belief in him, we can have eternal life. This means that we can say, well, I'm not holy, but he is. God, count him for me. When you look to me, count his good deeds for me. Count my sin on him that went to the cross. That's how we get saved now. Be grateful for our access to God. Read those passages. And if you ever get in there like, man, all the laws, man, all the details, man, all the ritual, all of that has been fulfilled in Jesus. All of that has been satisfied in him. All that ritual, all that ceremony, all that sacrifice and all that blood has been completed in him. We shouldn't disdain that. We should love that and be so grateful for what it is that Jesus did. And lastly, take advantage of that access. Can you imagine what it would have been like if God were to tell the high priest or anybody, any, anybody in the old covenant in Israel and say, hey, amnesty day, anyone wants to come in to the holy place or the holy, most holy place, come in. And people were like, nah, I'm gonna sleep an extra hour. I'd rather watch sports. I have other things that take up more time. Whoa. Don't let that be us. God has given us access to him. You and I can pray to God, invest our energy and time. We can hear from God. We can have face time with the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let us take advantage of that. And let us share with others how to do the same. Let's pray. Father, this very morning we are so grateful that because of Jesus, we have access to you. We thank you that he has fulfilled the role of high priest. He has fulfilled the blood sacrifice needed. He has fulfilled the need for one to enter a temple. And he didn't even go into a physical broken temple. He went into the perfect, ultimate, complete, eternal, heavenly one. Father, thank you that all those things are true. I pray that we live as though that was true. Help us to preach that good news to the people around us. Help us, if we're struggling with this, to investigate, to invest the energy into seeing why it is so incredible and the love that you have for us, why you love us. Father, help us to acknowledge in the wonderful grace that you've given us that we can step before you and help us to do so regularly, regularly to boldly approach the throne of grace, as this author will go on to say. Help us to be a people who do that all the time, who can't get enough of you, Lord, who want to be with you and pray before you and bring our burdens before you and share our life and our days with you and appeal to you and your word when we're trying to figure out every detail of our lives, Lord. Help us to not forsake the wonderful gift that we have been given. And Lord, oh Lord, help us to be so generous and open with that access with all the people that we know that we would want others to see how they can have that too. We love you, Lord, and we ask, you for, ask for your help in doing these things. And pray all this in Jesus' good name. Amen.